I want you to open your Bibles to the book of Acts. And we're actually going to look at a couple different passages of Scripture uh, today. And for sake of time, we probably won't turn to all of them. Uh, I've written them down and I'll probably either read them or quote them. Uh, but just so that you have a reference point, I want us to uh, look at Acts chapter 17. I'm glad the Bible has the answers, aren't you? I'm glad that the Bible addresses all issues that pertain to life and godliness. And indeed, that's what the Bible says. The Bible is sufficient and God's word is sufficient. And while circumstances and events might take us by surprise, they do not take God by surprise. And the issues that we face in 2020 are not different kinds of issues that mankind has not faced for 6,000 years. And so Bible principles exist to help navigate us through these troubling waters. And so I want to talk to you this morning, and I've advertised this. We've advertised it out front. We've talked about it on Facebook. I think you probably received an email about this as well. I want to talk about a biblical view of racism. A biblical view of racism. And the more that I... Uh, prepared this message and thought about uh, what I was going to say today and really thought about what I was not going to say. Because a topic like this is so large that it's, it's, it's really a matter of what don't you say instead of what do you say. And so I, I've, I've really given this time and attention and prayer. No doubt I'm not going to satisfy uh, everybody. Uh, I, I, I'm sure that uh, you'll leave the room today and, and, and think, well, he should have said this. And there's no doubt. I'm telling you that that will be true just because of the time frame. Some will say, well, he said this, but what did he mean? I wish he would have explained. I understand. I, I understand. And I want this to be an ongoing conversation. I want you to know that all of my messages, including this message, are completely open to your scrutiny. I want you to know that. I don't speak as one that has authority in this matter. I speak as one that wants to faithfully preach the Bible. And if I, if I err in that, I want you to show me. I want all of us just to have a humble attitude. What does the Bible say? And if we've missed it, then we've missed it. And let's make sure that we're humble enough to address it. And so I, I just want you to know my heart going in. Uh, as I finished the, putting the final touches on this message, I actually thought about changing the title. Not, not a biblical view of racism, but a better title, I think, would be a, a biblical look at racism. And, and that might seem like uh, a minor point, but view, view, almost, it almost implies that it's a comprehensive panoramic view of the topic, and it's not. It's not. Look, I think, is a better word because that's what we're doing. We're looking at it. Now, I can look at something and maybe not describe all of it. I can look at something and maybe not even see all of it. And I want you to know, I understand that. And so this is a biblical look at racism. I hope it'll be a blessing to you. I'm going to do a lot of reading today. Uh, I, I wrote down what I want to say, and I want to say it all, that what, uh, what, I've, what I've put down. I want to say all of what I've put down. And I know myself, 
And I know that if I kind of get off script, we'll be here until 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, I'll hear stomachs rumbling, and that's never a good thing, okay? So um, much of what I'll say will be read, so I'm going to ask that you would just listen on purpose. I won't be able to engage the way I normally do, maybe use some of the homiletic tools that I normally would use, so I just want you to help me with that. I want to give you, I think, seven introductory statements so you'll understand where I'm coming from when we jump into the five statements I want to make about racism, about a biblical look at racism, okay? Seven introductory statements. First of all, I realize that I am white. Now, I know that might come as a shock to some of you, okay? Dr. Forster, I don't think I ever officially told you that, but, but, but I am white. And I say that because I want you to know that I am not speaking today from the standpoint of experiential knowledge. So I understand that. It's frustrating, I think, sometimes to hear from somebody whom you think, well, you just don't know, Pastor Skelly. You think you know, but you don't know, and how could you know? And I want you to know I understand that. I feel a lot this morning like the 25-year-old preacher years ago when I started a church in Connecticut. And one of the very first topical series I did was child-rearing. <laughs> and I just think back to that about some of these older couples in the church that had raised children that were my age, and I'm teaching them about child-rearing. Now, did that mean that my lessons were wrong? No. I tried to make sure they were from the Bible. But I'm sure in the application, I missed some things. Why? It wasn't my experience yet. So I want you to understand that. Number two, I realize that like most of you, I have strong opinions about the events that are taking place. And most of you have a strong opinion. You've watched what I've watched. You've seen the riots. You've seen the, the looting. You saw the horrific video of George Floyd losing his life. You saw what I... We have strong opinions. And I imagine that, that opinions are, have nuances of differences. We might even have extremely different opinions represented in this room. I'm not sure of that, but, but, but we may. And certainly, there might be some watching online today that maybe you just happened upon uh, this site. and Maybe the, the title of the message grabbed you. And I want you to know that I understand that this is a, a polarizing issue. I understand that this is an incendiary issue. I get it. I understand it. And so I realize that, like most of you, I have strong opinions about the events that are taking place. My conviction, now listen, my conviction that black lives matter, and that is my conviction, my conviction that black lives matter is foundationed in what I believe the Bible teaches and what the gospel celebrates. So I want you to understand that. My conviction that black lives matter is foundationed in what I believe the Bible teaches and what the gospel celebrates. Now, I know that for some, when I say that, your immediate reaction is, yeah, but Pastor Skelly, don't all lives matter? And of course they do. Of course they do. But if I were in a neighborhood and one house were burning down and you asked me to help put out that fire, I wouldn't look at you and say, well, all houses matter. I would deal with the house that was on fire. 
And right now in our country, we have a house that's on fire. And so we got to concentrate on that house matters. And so right now I celebrate that statement. Now, don't get me wrong. That doesn't mean that I affiliate with every organization that would, that would operate by that moniker. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is I subscribe to that statement. I think the Bible teaches it. I think the gospel celebrates it. Number three, I realize that no matter what side of the issue you're on, even in the black community, the opinions strongly diverge. I'm hoping that all of us, now listen to this, I'm hoping that all of us agree that racism is reprehensible and should be categorically repudiated. So listen, you might, you might this morning feel, this is just overblown, this is just political whatever, this happens every four years. That might be your attitude. It's not mine, but it might be yours. But can you at least take a step back from that this morning and say that racism, even if you think it's, just localized, even if you think that it's not what, what people are purporting it to be, can you at least agree that racism is wrong and ought to be repudiated and ought to be dealt with? And for whatever reason that's been brought to the consciousness, the, the overt consciousness of our nation, we've got to talk about it right now. Let me finish the statement. I also hope that the Flashpoint event, not the only event, but the flashpoint event, what's the flashpoint event for all of which we're talking about? The George Floyd murder. That's the flashpoint event. It's, it's very difficult to watch that video. I don't know if you saw it in its entirety. It's very difficult to watch that video and, and not just feel outrage at the injustice that was done to George Floyd. Whatever you believe the motivation to be, it was a horrible injustice that took place in front of all of us. And so I hope that we can agree on that. I hope we can equally condemn uh, the horrific murder of George Floyd. I hope that all justice-loving people can do that. Number four, I realize that these events are particularly sensitive to the black community. I realize that. I don't get it like you do. I'm not claiming I do but I know that it's particularly sensitive to you. And I want to personally and publicly say how much I appreciate and have prayed for you in our church by name. As I've thought about this message, I've thought about you. I've thought about what you must be thinking and feeling. And so I just want you to know I have prayed for you in, in this matter. Number five, I love and appreciate our law enforcement personnel. I'm saddened that so many honorable and brave men and women have had their stellar reputation painted over with a broad brush. What happened in Minnesota was reprehensible. What happens in every instance of police brutality is absolutely inexcusable. But I'm here to say some of the finest people I know and some of the finest people in our church are law enforcement personnel, and I'm grateful for them. Every profession has bad apples, including mine. 
I'm not one of them. <laughs> we should be intent upon the purification of, of a profession, not the eradication of a profession. Amen. Did you hear that? We should be intent upon the purification of a profession, not the eradication of a profession. Number six, I'm sincerely praying for and I'm empathetic toward all of the small business owners who have suffered senseless violence and looting during these trying days. I'm praying for them as well. People have lost their livelihood. People have lost their dream, the American dream. Uh, people of all creeds and colors. And it's been, it's been sad to watch that. I'm praying for the families of the at least 12 people who have lost their lives in these protests. It's, it's, been, a, it's been a dark day. Lastly, this is a complex issue. It cannot be captured in one message. My intention is to provide a biblical framework inside of which each one of us can do more introspecting because that's my primary takeaway today. I want the truth of the message. Insofar that truth is shared, I want that truth to be a microscope through which we look at our own lives and not a telescope through which we look at other people's lives. So this ought to provide a biblical framework for introspecting, for meditating, for studying, and for learning. So that's my goal. That's my, those are my introductory statements. Now, what do we need to understand in trying to take a biblical look at racism? All right, statement number one. There is only one race. There is only one race. It's called the human race. That's not a trite saying I picked up somewhere and you'll know, feel good trite sayings.com. That's, that's the truth from the word of God. There is one race. It's the human race. As a matter of fact, I'll be honest with you. I struggled. I struggled a bit even putting the word racism in my message. And the only reason I use the word racism is because it's the narrative. It's the term that we use. But understand that racism as a word is a misnomer. It's a misnomer. It, it almost gives credence to the fact that there do exist different races, but there do not exist different races. Not according to the Bible. Uh, there is no biblical credence to there's a black race and an Asian race and a Caucasian. That, that, that's not in the Bible. Matter of fact, if you have your Bible open to Acts 17, let me read kind of the introductory verse. The Apostle Paul is speaking to some very smart people at uh, Athens, Greece, uh, people that pride themselves and uh, their polytheistic and open-minded multiculturalism and diversity about religions and gods. And the Apostle Paul says to them in verse 24, God, do you see that? Acts 17 and verse 24, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything seeing he giveth to all life and breath 
in all things. That God is transcendent. God is creator God. God doesn't need anything. But now watch what the Bible says in verse 26. And hath made. What is part and parcel to the creation of God? Well, the Bible tells us in verse 26. He hath made of one blood. That's the Bible commentary on people. He hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. God knows who you are. He knows what you are. He knows where you are. And what God says about human beings is God says that human beings, we are one blood. Now, that's true biblically. That's also true scientifically. Now, all you have to do is a, a simple elementary uh, search on the Internet to find the science behind, behind what, what I'm talking about. Hey, you remember the Genome Project in the 1990s? We celebrated the, the, the mapping of the human genome for the, genome for the first time. And what did we find out when we mapped the human genome at the cellular level? What did we find out? We found out that, hey, we all are one blood. It's like scientists finally found out, yeah, the Bible's true. It's true. You say, but we look so different. Of course we do. But, but what makes us look different is so infinitesimally small. You know, the, you know the biological variation of skin color? Because skin color is, the, is like the big thing. It's like the big thing that separates some people. You know, the, you, do you know, by the way, there is no black and there is no white. There's only in between. You know that, right? There is not black. There's some people that are blacker and people that are whiter, but there's no black and, no, there's no black and white. There's only in between. Okay, and understand that the variation uh, in the biology of skin color is 0.012. That's the variation between uh, people biologically uh, based upon skin color. You know that no two individuals who have ever lived are more than 0.2 variation apart biologically. That means... All people, the most different person you can find for the most different person you can find uh, genetically is still 99.8% the exact same person. We argue about nothing. That there's one race, it's, it's the human race. Darwinian evolution was, I quote from AIG, and still is, inherently a racist philosophy teaching that different groups or races of people evolved at different times and rates. Even the leading evolutionist Stephen Jay Gould claimed, quote, biological arguments for racism may have been common before 1859. That's when Dar Darwin came out with the origin of species. They may have been common before 1859, but they increased by orders of magnitude following the acceptance of evolutionary theory. No, evolution didn't make man better, the, the subscription to it. No, it, it became a foundational thought by which racism flourished. Uh, Oda Benga was a Congo pygmy from the Mabuti tribe. After the origin of species was released and began to sell like hotcakes all around the world, uh, Oda was treated like he was an animal. He was shipped to the United States and put in the Bronx Zoo 
as an example of biological evolution. Same thing happened to the Australian Aborigines. We've come a long way, baby. Sad. Reporting on research conducted on the concept of race, ABC News stated, quote, more and more scientists find that the differences that set us apart are cultural, not racial. Some even say that the word race should be abandoned because it's meaningless. The article went on to say that we accept the idea of race because it's a convenient way of putting people into broad categories, frequently to suppress them. The most hideous example, obviously, is Adolf Hitler, who suppressed an entire people group on the basis of race, an Aryan race. And by the way, you know where he got that, don't you? Uh, Karl Marx and Charles Darwin, the foundation for the philosophy of Adolf Hitler. More recently, those working on mapping the human genome announced that they had put together a draft of the entire sequence of the human genome, and the researchers had unanimously declared there's only one race, the human race. The Bible teaches it. Science ver verifies it. And so while I use the term race and racism for the rest of my message, I want you to understand, I understand there is only one race. Number two, because the Bible presents an accurate view of God and man, do you believe that? The Bible presents an accurate view of God and man. That's why we know man didn't write the Bible, because if man wrote the Bible, he'd make himself look really, really good. But when you read the Bible, you'll find out man doesn't look really, really good. He looks really, really bad, but God looks really, really good. And so because the Bible presents an accurate view of God and man, mankind is depicted in all of his brokenness. Now listen, including his prejudice and racism. When you read the story of the Bible, you know what you'll read? You'll read the story about broken man. And when you see the descriptions of broken man, you'll find that mankind inherently is prejudiced and racist. It's part of, a, it's part of the sin condition. It's part, of who, it's part of what we inherited from Adam. By the way, we all came from Adam. A couple statements. We see this truth about the brokenness of man and prejudice. We see it in the Bible. We see it in history. And we see it in the church unfortunately. We see it in the Bible, we see it in history, and we see it in the church. Racism and prejudice, okay? In the Bible, was there prejudice? Now, we can go to the Old Testament, but let's stay in the New Testament. Do you see prejudice in the New Testament? You better believe it. And the prejudice that you see in the New Testament is the prejudice of God's people, the prejudice that you see in the New Testament is the prejudice modeled by the Jewish nation, the nation whom God wanted to use to reach the world, but they had no love for the world because the world is beneath them. We are superior to all other people. We don't want to mess with the world. The Gentiles are dogs. When we walk through their city, we shake off the dust of our feet. We don't even want a vestige of their influence upon us. The worst insult we could throw at you is you're a Gentile. We think that racial jokes were invented in our century. Oh, no, no. They told those jokes years ago. There was all kinds of racial enmity in the Bible. Remember when the Apostle Paul was delivering the offering to the poor saints at Jerusalem? 
He attended the feast. The Bible says that he was uh, arrested at that feast. And they were charging him with uh, causing insurrection at the feast. And uh, they took him into custody and brought him to the steps of what's called the Antonio Fortress. The Apostle Paul turned to the commander and said, may I please speak to the crowd? You can read all about it. In the book of Acts. The Apostle Paul stood there on the steps of the Antonio Fortress and in Acts 22 began to talk about his testimony. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Somebody they had learned under one of the most respected teachers of the day. You talk about a man that was born with prejudice. You talk about a man that was, that was born with a, a certain way of thinking about other people. It was the Apostle Paul. You talk about a man that, that was all about Jewish superiority. It was, it was Paul. The Apostle Paul gave his testimony, and when he got to the point in his message, speaking to a Jewish audience, when he got to the point in his message, when he said, but God appeared to me, Jesus appeared to me, the Messiah, and he told me that I'm going to be sent unto the Gentiles. Here's what the Bible says. I want, I want to actually read it because it's an amazing verse. Acts 22 and verse 21. And he said unto me, Depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. And we'll watch what the Bible says in Acts 22, 22. And they, that's the Jewish people, they gave him audience. You know what that means? They're listening. They're listening to his message. They're all zoned in. But watch what it says, Acts 22, 22. And they gave him audience unto this word. Hey, Paul, we were with you until you said that word. Paul, we were, we were on board. Man, we were all ears until you said the word Gentiles. And guess what? When he said the word Gentiles, they didn't let him say one other word. So deeply ingrained was their prejudice against a people group that when he simply said the word, we're not listening to you. This is the Apostle Paul. What am I saying? I'm saying that the best of men are men at best. I'm saying that even the great Apostle Paul in his previous life had been a prejudiced, bigoted, Jewish superiority person until the gospel got a hold of his heart. Wow. And so we see it in the Bible. But not only do we see it in the Bible, we see it in history. I was going to give you examples after examples after examples of the way that mankind has, has uh, stood against mankind, opposed mankind, killed mankind on the basis of, of, of race alone. But there's too many. There are too many examples. So I limited it to a few examples in our century, the last hundred years. I just limited it to the last hundred years. In the last 100 years, Adolf Hitler slaughtered six million Jews. That's a racial prejudice. In the last hundred years, the Hutus killed 1.5 million Tutsis in Rwanda in 1994. In 1937, the Japanese Imperial Army went to the city of Nanking. You know the story, the rape of Nanking, and slaughtered hundreds of thousands of Chinese innocent citizens. As recently as 2000 to 2005, Saddam Hussein had a plan for the genocide of the Kurdish people. 
in eastern Turkey. Read in 1915 about how Turkey uh, uh, committed genocide on half of the Armenian population. Half of the Armenian population in the world died in 1915 because someone decided Armenians don't deserve to live. Pol Pot, if you've ever seen a documentary on Pol Pot and the horrible atrocities in Cambodia, a million people systematically killed. It happened back in the 1970s. 10,000 Christians a year are martyred conservatively. This is not too far removed from us. The scab that we're picking here today, this is not too far removed from us. Do you know that Eliza Moore, who was Eliza Moore? She was a slave. You know when she died? 1948. We love to think about slavery and, and, and the selling of other human beings and the commodity of human sale. We like to think about that as a distant thing in our memory. Is it distant? My mother was born in 1941. There are people that know people that knew slaves. We're one person removed from slavery in our country. Don't tell me, don't tell me that there aren't latent prejudices in our minds. Don't tell me it doesn't exist. Because it does. And probably at a deeper level than you and I even realize. We are not so far removed. I see it in the Bible. I see it in history. But listen, my friends. I see it in the church. It's time to tell on ourselves. I'm talking about the church that names the name of Jesus Christ. We've gone through all kinds of theological gymnastics over the years to justify our racism. Well, God cursed Ham. That's the black folks. They're supposed to be servants. I mean, God made them that way. You know, that, that was a popular teaching in church. I mean, the Bible talks about masters and slaves, and slaves are just get in place and do their thing. I mean, that's what the Bible teaches. Somehow interpreting Bible passages through their present experience, and that's not what the Bible is teaching at all. And certainly the Bible is not justifying selling people as a commodity. When I went to high school, a Christian high school, as recently as the 1980s, there was a rule... In our rule book at my Christian high school, black people can't date white people. That's my Christian school. And then I went off to Bible college. And when I went to Bible college, I found out there were things called racial jokes. I didn't even know they existed. Growing up in Connecticut, we're a little bit more East Coast progressive. I didn't. But I went to Bible college, and I'm around some of the good old boys, and I'll tell you what. I found out real quickly there was a different policy for picking up bus children that were Spanish and bus children that were black. You know what that is? That's sin. That's reprehensible. That's wrong. But we all played along. Doesn't affect me. I didn't give it two thoughts. We all just played along. It's in the Bible. 
It's in history, all recent history. You don't have to go fishing too long. It's in the church house. Number three. Number three. Jesus serves as our example. Amen? Jesus serves as our example. He fertilized the ground of racial unity by teaching the disciples. Don't you know that Jesus didn't have to use Peter, Andrew, James, and John, or the rest of them? They were as, they were as prejudiced as prejudice could be. He didn't have to use them. He could have circumvented them. He could have put them on the shelf. But you know what, God, you know what Jesus did? Jesus invested in prejudiced people to change their prejudice through the power of the gospel so that those formerly prejudiced people could go out and reach the people they were supposed to reach in the first place. Amen. That's the way that works. So what did Jesus do? He fertilized the ground. And don't you know that when he fertilized the ground in his public ministry, he was totally misunderstood. John chapter 4, we must needs go through Samaria. And the disciples are thinking, we're going to go where? Then he talks to a woman that's a Samaritan. And the disciples are you're talking to who? Matter of fact, you read the Bible. When they came back from getting their groceries in town and Jesus was talking to a Samaritan, the Bible says they were shocked. We don't talk to those people. And by the way, the Samaritan woman, she was just as happy. She was just as shocked. Don't you know I'm a Samaritan? You don't talk to us. We don't have any dealings with each other. You shop at your store, I shop at my store. You go to your church, I go to my church. That's what she was saying. You have your religion, I have my religion. Hey, listen, let's just leave it be. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't leave it be? And he answered all of her excuses. And when she said, you know what, you've got your way, I've got my way. Jesus said, no, no, it's God's way and God's a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Listen, get on board. Jesus was our example. A really erudite, young student of the law of Moses came to Jesus one day. And said, so I want to know what I have to do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus said, what do you think? He said, I think you ought to love God and love your neighbor. Jesus said, well, okay, you, you go do that. And the man said, well, who's my neighbor? He said, oh, let me tell you who your neighbor is. And isn't it interesting that when Jesus defined what biblical love looks like, he defined it as one race that doesn't have anything to do with the other race. And I understand I'm misusing the word race, but, but we understand it's a misused word for sake of argument. One people group that didn't go on with this people group was God. He used that as the example. The good Samaritan. Well, Jesus was a radical. He wasn't accepted by the church folks. He wasn't accepted by the common uh, what, what people commonly accepted. Uh, the disciples would, would call him out on it. And Peter would say, oh, what are you talking about, Lord? What are you talking about? They were so steeped in their preconception and their prejudice, they couldn't even see what Jesus was saying. And then when he commissioned them, guys, I want you to do a job here in Jerusalem, and I want you to do a job in Judea. And then, guys, I want you to move to Samaria. That's the next place. You study church history, study the book of Acts. Did they proactively go to Samaria? No. No, they were Johnny-come-latelys. They, they stayed in Jerusalem and Judea. It took persecution to scatter them, and finally they got doing what God called them. God had to kick them. Remember what I told you? 
And then to reach the Gentiles, he had to go to Peter and say, Peter, go reach that Gentile. And Peter said, no. And God said, no, no, I told you, no. And God said a third time, no, I told you, okay. I'm just telling you, prejudice dies hard. It dies hard. And Jesus serves as our example. He fertilized the ground of racial unity by teaching the disciples. Number four, I have so much more to say. Number four, the spread of the gospel demanded the eradication of racial prejudice. Let me tell you something. When you practice racial prejudice, you inhibit the gospel. I can't think of anything more sad than the inhibition of the gospel. The apostle Peter, no, Lord, I'm not going to go. I've never touched anything common or unclean. I don't touch those people. I don't talk to those people. They're not my people. God, don't ask me to do it. But Peter had to get over himself, didn't he? And Peter was inhibiting the spread of the gospel by saying no to God. And prejudice often says no to God. Can I just say this? Prejudice has nine lives. You might think that you're over prejudice, and I might too, but we're never really over it. Because it, it, it has a way of resurrecting itself. It did in Peter's life. Peter was the one whom God used to bring the, the, the gospel to the Gentiles. And when the other people in Jerusalem said, Peter, what were you doing eating with Gentiles? Peter said, hey, 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 let me tell you the story. God spoke to me in a vision. They said, okay, I guess if God spoke to you. But then later on, Peter goes to Antioch and uh, he withdraws and separates himself because he's afraid about what people will think that he's eating with Gentiles. The guy that God taught to eat with Gentiles, the guy, the, the guy that God used to bring the gospel the Gentiles now, years later, says, I don't want to hang out with them. I'm afraid of what people will think. Now, I mean, personally, I'm not prejudiced, but I get around my group and, boy, it's time for leaders. That's Peter. It's time for leaders to put the onus upon themselves. Because, Dad, what you say is what your son believes. And Grandpa, the jokes you tell, that's where your son, that's the, that's the opinion your son forms. And pastors, what we teach and what we prioritize, that's the direction. So it's time for leaders to put onus upon themselves and say, what has happened is wrong. I'm talking about historically. Own up to it, repent of it, get right. And so the spread of the gospel demanded the eradication of racial prejudice. I want to make a statement. This is not in the Bible, but it's, it's something I believe. And so you can toss it out if you want to. Uh, two of the most prejudiced people in all the Bible became champions of the gospel, Paul and Peter. They were two of the most prejudiced people you ever find. They became champions. But here's the statement I want to make. Prejudice is not what we think. Prejudice is how we think. Understand the difference. See, we like, to, we like to think that we know what we're thinking. But prejudice is so ingrained, it's how we think. When Jesus said, I'm going to die, Peter said, no, you're not. Because it wasn't in his narrative. He couldn't go to that thought because he had never had that thought. 
No, prejudice is not what we think, it's how we think. It's the lens, it's the glasses that we wear through which we see life. That's why we need the power of the gospel to renew our thinking. We need, we need rethinking at the heart level. That's why we need to be open to the illumination of the Holy Spirit of God. Prejudices are not the decisions we make. They are the way we make decisions. It's a big difference. They're not the decisions we make. They're the way that we make those decisions. So ask God. Ask God to help you to look inward. Sit at the table with Jesus and don't doggedly defend yourself. Look at Jesus and say, is it I? Just look at him. I just challenge you. Just look at him and say, Lord, is it me? Is this me? Lord, is this me? And you, you, you just might see some things that you've not seen before because he's the helper of what you can see. Number five, and lastly, you're not going to like to hear this, but it, it's, it's true. Change took time. Change took time. This thing wasn't solved overnight. Change took time, but it was intentional and non-negotiable. The, the racism problem in the Bible, the Jew-Gentile problem, which is far more incendiary than even the problems we have in America, and they're big, they're big. They're not small, they're big. But understand, the Jewish-Gentile problem, it was huge. And it didn't end overnight. But listen, it was an intentional and non-negotiable change. It would have been easy to say, well, let's just have a Gentile church and let's have a Jew church. That would have been the easy solution. Hey, you say tomato, I say tomato. You do it your way, I'll do it my way. You do your service, that's your culture, this is my culture. But that was not an option. Can I just say this? In the church of Jesus Christ, that's not an option. We're called to be one body. But there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither bond nor free, neither male nor female. We're all one in Christ. And so it wasn't an option for them to say, well, we're just going to segregate, and you can segregate, and that's fine. That is not what the Bible teaches. So what, what had to happen? They had to get together. When they got together, listen, they got together, they, they prayed they gathered, they talked, they argued, they confronted, and they learned. Read it. Read Acts chapter 15. Yeah, but, yeah, but, why don't you say that? They made concessions. They thought about the other group. You know, how can we keep the Gentiles in? Okay, well, have them make these accommodations. Don't, don't eat things strangled and stay from fornication. And, just, and, 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 then, and the meat issue of Romans 14 and 15, 1 Corinthians 8, 9 and 10. You know what that's all about? That's all about accommodating people that have a different culture. That's what that's all about. Because the option was not you go to another church. That wasn't the option. The, op the option was we are followers of Jesus and we're going to get along. If that means that I've got to eat my meat at home, that's what I'm going to do. But we're going to find a way to love each other and get along. That was the only option. It was, it was intentional. It was non-negotiable. Church ought to be reflective of the demographic around it. 
Our church ought to be reflective of the demographic of this area. Is it? Probably not. But it ought to be. These times of division and confusion ought to be times when a troubled world can see the model of unity in the church. Our senators ought to be calling, hey, Kurt, how do you do it? What's going on down there at Faith Baptist Church? Well, you guys, you do a great job with this, but we can learn from this. Can you help? But you know what I find? I find the church lags behind. I find that it's, it's government historically that's been the first to integrate. It's government historically that's been the first to uh, policize it in the military. And uh, we have uh, examples like in the military and examples in some, uh, in some uh, uh, forced to integrate schools that, that you see some, but boy, churches, we lag behind. Didn't we? If you don't have to believe, with, you don't have to believe that if you don't want to, but uh, the truth is staring us right in the face. To be honest, it has largely not been the church, at least here in Virginia and South, that modeled the kind of integrative oneness the gospel reflects. It's too often been government mandates and military policies. It's time that the church of Jesus Christ took the lead in racial unity. It's time that the church of Jesus Christ took the lead in racial unity. So we love the story of John Bunyan. John Bunyan. Where did that name come from? John Bunyan. He was the preacher. Paul Bunyan, he was the lumberjack. Um, John Newton. We love the story of John Newton. Who was he? The writer of, help me, Amazing Grace. Perhaps the most famous Christian hymn of all time, Amazing Grace. And you know the story of John Newton. He was a, a, a drunk. He was a a vile man, he was a, a slave trader, and he ran a slave ship. You know the story. And John Newton got saved. He prayed one night, the ship was going to go down, thought it was going to be wrecked, and he prayed that God would save the ship, and uh, the, the cargo in the hold miraculously kind of moved over and covered the hole in the ship, and the ship was able to drift to land, and they were saved. And John Bunyan gave his heart to Jesus Christ and got saved and uh, totally turned on the slave trade. And man, he wrote Amazing Grace. What a story. And that's the way I've always told it. But that's not the story. That's not the story of John Newton. Did John Newton get saved? Yes. Did he speak against the slave trade? You better believe it. Matter of fact, his pamphlet that he wrote was one of the, 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 the huge impetuses behind the abolition of slavery in Britain. William Wilberforce used his words in a great and powerful way. But do you know, it was 34 years after John Newton invited Christ into his life that he finally was brave enough to come out against slavery. Let me read the paragraph. It was not until 1788, 34 years after leaving it, the slave trade, that he renounced his former slaving profession by publishing a blazing pamphlet called Thoughts Upon the Slave Trade. The tract described the horrific conditions on slave ships and Newton apologizing for making a public statement so many years after participating in the trade. Quote, Newton said, 
It will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. The pamphlet was so popular, it was reprinted several times and sent to every member of parliament. Under the leadership of William Wilberforce, the English civil government outlawed slavery in Britain in 1807. 34 years. What am I saying? I'm saying change, change takes time. I don't want it to take time. I wish it wouldn't. But such is the hardness of human hearts. And here's what I would say to all of us. You might be up in years and, well, Pastor Gal, I'm just kind of set in my ways. But that's not an excuse. Well, we've just always kind of, listen. These are jokes I've always, stop. You can, by the grace of God, change today. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was. I was blind. And now I see it. What was he talking about? Yeah, I was talking about the Lord, but I think he's talking about his former life. All of it. I couldn't see it. I couldn't see it. I couldn't see it. But now I see it. And that's what the gospel can do. Maybe today you're watching from home or maybe you're in this room and you'd say, I don't know Jesus Christ as my personal savior. Today's your day. The answer is not political change. The answer is not social change. The answer is heart change. And only Jesus can do that. You need to receive him today as your savior. And then as a Christian, as a Christian, can I just invite you to pray today? I know that we have social distancing rules, but in a moment when I pray and James plays the piano, I think it'd be appropriate Keep your distance, but why, why don't we come to this altar today? Why don't we come and kneel for a moment or two? And as a church family said, we can't answer for Minneapolis and we can't answer for uh, the various cities of our country. We can't answer for our state, but we can answer for Faith Baptist Church. Now, why don't we decide? Why don't we decide today that our church is going to be a reflection of the gospel of Jesus Christ?